You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. If I take a syringe filled with some very, very small electronics and give myself a jab in the arm, well... I may implant an NFC device, that is a near-field communication device, kind of like a Bluetooth, and that could make my life easier. Just as an example, I mean, I could unlock doors without pulling out a key. If I want to implant other devices, well, I'd just do it. As a biohacker, I am both experimenter and experiment. And in that way, hacking today requires more steely resolve than merely lifting up a receiver and bypassing operators with a toot from a Davy Crockett cat and canary bird call flute. Operator, what city, please? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, the second of two episodes on hacking, the idea of hacking has evolved and expanded since the time it referred to an almost wholesome hobby. Today, the threats that computer hackers pose range from inconvenient to existential. Meanwhile, do-it-yourself biohackers experiment wildly on their own sensory perception, and those who suggest hacking the climate system through geoengineering to mitigate the effects of climate change hope to save the planet. In this second episode on hacking, a look at its modern variations and their consequences. This episode, Angles of a Hack. In our first episode on hacking, we talked with author Phil Lapsley about the original practitioners, the teenagers and nerdy outlaws who, in the 1950s and 1960s, hacked into the telephone system. They explored it, tinkered around, and avoided paying for long-distance calls. Today, the term hacking has grown to encompass much darker exploits. Hackers, who we believe now were Russian hackers, took down the power for a quarter million Ukrainians in three regions of the country. And not only that, but their attacks are evolving. Phil Lapsley told us he recognized a continuum stretching from the phone freaks of 60 years ago to modern computer hackers. I very much see the phone freaks of the 1950s and 60s as being the grandparents of computer hackers today. But as we know, a lot can change in a few generations. 
Sure, some computer hackers hack for fun, like the phone freaks did, exploring a system simply out of curiosity. Some even do ethical hacking, tapping into computer systems to expose vulnerabilities before criminals exploit them. In fact, you may hear the terms white hat and black hat hackers, but it's the black hats that grab our attention and provoke our fears. They say that in cyber warfare, there are no rules. Countries attack each other's infrastructure, utilities, and transport systems without setting a boot or a tank on foreign soil. But the attacks need not be state-run. A group of individuals, even one person, can hack a financial institution and grab social security numbers or take down a network with denial-of-service attacks. The number of potential victims from any one breach can be in the millions. The May 2017 hack on the consumer credit reporting agency Equifax compromised sensitive information on 143 million Americans. It's part of a very worrisome pattern. One computer security expert told us that there are two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that don't know that they've been hacked. We may not have anticipated these threats in 1950, but by 2012 they were so dire that Defense Secretary Leon Panetta warned that the United States was facing a cyber Pearl Harbor. We know that foreign cyber actors are probing America's critical infrastructure networks. These kinds of attacks could be a cyber Pearl Harbor, an attack that would cause physical destruction and the loss of life, an attack that would paralyze and shock the nation. Former head of the CIA, Leon Panetta, I think was right that we're not prepared when you consider how much of what we value is now stored digitally and connected to the internet. We're not prepared for the type of attack that could occur through cyber-enabled means. John Carlin is an attorney and the chair of Morrison and Forrester's Crisis and Risk Management Practice. Prior to that, he was assistant attorney general for national security during the Obama administration. The department was responsible for protecting the country against many security threats, including cyber crimes. If you look at it in the big sweep over a 20, 30 year period as a society, we invested enormous amounts of money and ingenuity in moving almost everything we value from the brick-and-mortar world, from paper and notes to digital form. And then we connected it to the Internet, the system that wasn't designed for security. And we did so without taking into account risks that all the same bad guys, the crooks, the spies, the terrorists that were attacking us in the old world are going to move to attack us in the new world. Well, I don't know if you ever wake up in the middle of the night worried about a specific threat, but if you were to do that, which one do you think it would be? What what aspect of this most worries you, other than the, if you will, the, the ensemble of threats? I'd say there's two main things. One is it's not a future worry. It's a right now worry. We're seeing a massive booming black market in the sale of stolen goods that were stolen through cyber-enabled means. So that means the most personal information about someone and information that's used to determine whether you are you when you're trying to do all sorts of transactions from your taxes to your health care to your credit card payments. That's out there and being sold right now in a portion of the web called the dark web. We're also seeing right now 
what I'll call cyber weapons of mass destruction, so botnets, hundreds of thousands of compromised computers that with a single command can be used to overwhelm a system with requests for information. And these are for rent on the dark web. Often they're used by criminal syndicates, but one can easily imagine them getting into the hands of a terrorist group. So that's the right now. And for the future, what I worry about is, as vulnerable as we are now, we're hurtling towards a new future, the so-called Internet of Things. Well, you speak of the bots and the hijacking of uh, uh, personal computers. Are you suggesting that my home computer could be used in a, a giant malevolent hacking scheme? Yes, exactly. This is how sophisticated this dark market is. If you went on there today and someone showed you where to look, what you would see, you could click on a site and it would look like you're looking at Amazon. And when I say it looks like Amazon, I mean it's bad guys posting. They have something like a botnet. And then you have customer reviews, sometimes with five-star ratings saying, hey, I've used this crook before. And I found that he's always reliable when he gives me stolen information or two stars. This crook acts really like a crook and you can't trust him. So that's out there now. And so your computer could be part of one of these botnets that's on this Amazon lookalike on the dark web where a crook could rent it and decide to send a command that said, I'm going to overwhelm a site with requests for information unless they pay me $50,000. And we're seeing that type of attack now. Let me get back to the kind of attack that uh, could have real consequences for security. In 2013, uh, there was a small team of Iranian hackers, like half a dozen people or something, working for the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, and they tried hacking a small dam about a dozen miles north of the Bronx in New York. Uh, I mean, the dam wasn't big. It was about the size of a handball court, if you look at it. But maybe this was just a training exercise. I mean, the dam itself wasn't so important. Yeah, so two fascinating things about that case. Number one, we were just talking about botnets and using them to to do these denial-of-service attacks, these mass requests for information. That uh, charge that you're talking about came in a criminal case. That was a group affiliated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they attacked over 47 different U.S. financial institutions. And what they attacked was the public-facing website that we all use as customers to access our bank account. They affected tens of millions of dollars for the banks and hundreds of thousands of customers who were unable to access their website. What we saw was that wasn't all the group was doing. What they also had done, as you say, was hack into the so-called sluice control systems of the Bowman Dam, which means if the dam had been working properly, they could have lifted up the floodgates and flooded the surrounding area. Now, luckily that dam happened to be down for maintenance at the time, but I think you'll, you'll agree with me, our crumbling infrastructure should not be the first line of defense when it comes to cyber attacks. And I think what you can learn there is No, that is not the only foreign actor trying to get into our critical infrastructure. And I think what they're looking for, if it's the type of foreign actor, you know, a Russia or a China, they're not going to cause our lights to go out. Uh, They're not going to cause mass flooding unless we were in a serious dispute because they recognize that that's crossing a red line. What happens, though, if a terrorist group were to gain that same type of access or a actor like North Korea who's unstable? That was something that worried me when I was running the National Security Division every day and continues to worry me now. Uh, Just a semantic point. Can you define the difference between a cyber attack and a cyber hack? The the latter sounds somehow less threatening. 
You know, people differ on their terminology, but some might say if you hack, so you gain unauthorized access to a system, that you, A, might not do it with bad intent, um, B, you might do it, your intent's bad, but your bad intent is to spy on information and not to take action, whereas a cyber attack actually causes destruction. So to use one that most people remember, the North Korean attack on Sony motion pictures because they didn't like a movie, they did a cyber attack which actually wiped the drives and so they were not usable at all uh, for Sony in addition to stealing information. So to contrast that with the hack of the Bowman Dam where they gained access to the dam systems, but we didn't actually see them use that access to either destroy the integrity of the data or cause the dam to flood. But I want to get back to what you just said here, that we've moved so much of what we value from analog to digital and use a medium which was never designed with security in mind. How did we manage to do that? How did we put everything we value onto the Internet without apparently thinking about security? You know, it's a fascinating transformation that's already occurred, and you're just seeing now. When I was prosecuting these cases 10, 15 years ago, people still weren't really focused on the risk. It's only been the last several years where if you talk to even a Fortune 100 board CEO and general counsel, this chief executive suite, where they're really starting to think through as risk mitigation, hey, what do we have uh, that's online? Should we have had it? How can we plan for resilience? And as worrisome as that was and how that happened, it's happening again as we speak because we're in the midst of this transformation, the transformation to the Internet of Things, where we're starting to connect real devices. So everything from pacemakers in people's hearts, where for good reasons they connected to the Internet to monitor how it was working, but they didn't think at all about security. And so a 12-year-old could hack it using commercially available software. It wasn't encrypted. That's real pacemakers in real people's hearts. And then they had to roll out a solution after the fact. Or to give another example, by 2020, about 70% of cars on the road are essentially going to be computers on wheels. I'm not talking about self-driving cars. I'm talking about cars where core components are connected to the internet. And we've already had a recall of 1.4 million Jeeps when a hacker did a proof of concept hack where they showed, hey, I can get in and take over the steering system and the braking system of this car. And the chief regulatory agency said, well, that's like a design defect. You need to do a recall like you would need to do if the brakes didn't work. You can't put a car on the road like that. So that's talking about literally things in our hearts to the cars on our roads. Millions and millions of devices are being connected as we speak. And the companies that are connecting them, rolling them out and selling these products, uh, not all of them, but most of them are not taking into account security. They're not required to by law or regulation, and customers aren't demanding it in their products. So as much as I'm worried about the instability of our current system, if we don't correct that trend, it's going to be far worse with dangers to people's actual lives in the next five to ten years. You know, maybe this is just, a, I don't know, a lugubrious interest of mine. But I, I, I want to have some idea of how the hackers do it. I mean, how do they find the vulnerabilities? Uh, I don't think I could hack into the Department of Energy, but some of these sophisticated attacks apparently start with something as innocuous as an email. Yeah, and it really varies. You say you don't think 
that you could do it, and it's true for some of the more sophisticated hacks where you need to move around inside somebody's system where there's an active defender trying to capture you. But for a lot of these attacks now, you could do it, and you could do it by knowing where to go on the dark market and just renting the capability. So you have the scheme in mind. Hey, it would be sure fun if I could you know, break into uh, Joe's computer system because I'd like to know what he's talking about on his email. I don't know much about computers. You could go on the dark market, kind of like it's very easy to search for terms using Google. You don't need to be a computer expert to type in a word on Google. Uh, You essentially can type in your commands to a tool that somebody else built and gain that access. That's out for rent right now. That's how ubiquitous it is. John, I assume that you're familiar with the fact that the original hackers were just, uh, I don't know, almost hobbyists hacking into the phone system. And now the kind of players we're talking about now seem to be, well, maybe there are amateurs, but there are also government-sponsored teams, right? That's right. I mean, sometimes you break it up now into uh, a couple different categories of what they call threat actors. So you could have your amateur or your hacktivist. So that's someone who's hacking because of some type of cause or ideology. Then you have your crooks who are doing it for money. And then you have your nation states who might be doing it for purposes of destructive, uh, destructive attacks or for, to spy, intelligence purposes. And then finally, you'd have your terrorist groups. These are non-state actors that just want to cause damage for a political cause and fear. What we're seeing now is there's not a real sharp divide between the different groups. Instead, we're seeing what I like to call the blended threat. So someone is a crook sometimes, but then other times they get hired out by a nation state or their day job is as a spy for a nation state, but they want to make some money on the side. So they rent out their services as a crook. Or it's one of these black markets where they rent the tool. So depending on which day someone's renting the tool, it could be used by a crook, an activist, or a nation state. We're moving more towards the blended threat. Why is that important? Because if you're getting attacked, it can be hard to tell which motive it is. And it's really important when you're trying to assess how severe an attack is to get that right. John Carlin, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. John Carlin is an attorney and the chair of Morrison and Forrester's Crisis and Risk Management Practice. He was Assistant Attorney General for National Security during the Obama administration. You know, in the cases of the computer network and the telephone network, both targets of hackers during different eras, both systems allowed hackers to communicate, more effectively communicate with each other. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Because the subterfuge is aided by the system they're trying to hack. But, you know, there are differences when you think about it. The phone company was designed to do one thing, right? To allow you to talk to somebody else somewhere else, right? But the Internet, that's a very complex, much more complex than the phone system was. But in both cases, vulnerabilities built into the system were exploited. Yes, indeed. It's a case of idealism running into the realities of uh, human behavior, I suppose. Well, we have a chilling idea of how hackers can attack, but practitioners of another kind of hacking claim they want to help, at least themselves. Biohackers implant electronic devices to boost their sensory abilities. Find out how far they're willing to go. And later, will hacking the climate system through geoengineering be the techno fix to climate change? This second episode of Hacking explores its modern variations and consequences. This is Angles of a Hack. On Big Picture Science. 
saving money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Hacking the phone system is one thing, hacking the internet is another, and so is hacking a bothersome tree branch with an axe. These are all forms of hacking, and the last one comes to mind when I imagine biohacking, because hacking into the human body sounds like a traumatic assault, but biohackers would disagree. Besides, you don't have to break skin to be a biohacker, although you might get more interesting results that way. One approach that often aligns telephone and computer hackers is their mastery of the network they are tapping into. But biohacking doesn't require that you have extensive knowledge of the systems of the human body before you plug into them. That might take a medical degree. The body is the original web of systems, the circulatory, respiratory, digestive, excretory, nervous, reproductive, endocrine, skeletal, and immune being just a few. But since biohackers are hacking themselves, no one else is affected, other than perhaps their bewildered spouses and unengineered friends. And if anything unites biohackers, it's the potential for self-improvement. No criminal intent there. Science reporter Kara Platoni talked to many who identify as biohackers while researching her book, We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, Physicians, and Scientists are Transforming Human Perception One Sense at a Time. But perhaps the most surprising thing she learned from them is that she may fit the definition of biohacker herself. And you may, too, if you're wearing shoes. Kara, let's start with grinders. This is a group of biohackers. And I wonder if you could just give us an example of what a grinder might do if a grinder could do anything a grinder wanted to do. Oh, my gosh. Okay, a grinder would build themselves a better body. They would go out and build some kind of cool implant or device that would go, uh, you know, into their arm or into their eyeball or, you know, someplace. And it would give them superpowers or augmented perception or it would make their life better in some way. Okay, so be, be specific here. So you, you stick what... The what? Well, okay. So some of the uh, the folks that I met who were doing this, guys from a group called Grindhouse Wetware, uh, they were building themselves, at first, a device called Circadia. And Circadia was about the size of a deck of cards, and it went in your lower arm, and it could read out your body temperature and port that information to your cell phone. It's kind of like a way to see what's going on inside your body at all times. Oh, and it, it lit up. It looked cool. Okay, it looked cool, and maybe it tells you what your body temperature is, but how does it augment your uh, abilities? I mean, it's not like a, a bionic arm or wings so you can fly. Not yet, right? Not yet. This was a really early stage test device, and the idea uh, was to see, first of all, if they can build it, and second of all, if it would kill anyone, right? They were, they wanted to see, could we build something in our basement that would be safe to wear long term? The battery wouldn't breach, it wouldn't, you know, leak fluids into your body, you wouldn't have a massive, you know, infection because of it. So they, uh, they tested Circadia for about three months. It worked okay. It had some flaws. They took it out. What they really wanted to build was uh, an internal compass. The idea was to build a little device that you would wear on the back of your hand 
and it would light up whenever you were facing north. It would be kind of like a shortcut to having electromagnetic uh, perception, the way birds and sea turtles and fish do. Right, but these are human beings. Right. They're not they're not avian creatures. And so what is the practical use of having a compass <laughs> built into your arm? Well, I mean, if you're ever lost in the woods, having a compass built into your arm would be pretty cool, right? Or another, uh, another device that some of them would implant would be like a little magnet. The idea is to have a little magnet in your body to have it respond to your environment. And I'd say, why do you need to have it in your hand? Why can't you have it in your pocket? And they'd say, because when it's in my body, it becomes a part of me. It becomes a part of my being. It becomes a part of the way I sense the world. It becomes part of the way I interact with my environment. I'm actually changing my body. So this idea of being human with all that humans can do, and we have a lot of great features the human body does, isn't enough? No, not for some people. You know, they would say the human body, it's okay, but it was engineered by accident. It's full of flaws, right? We get sick. We get old. We break down. Tons of us have, you know, some kind of disease or disorder that makes our bodies not what we wish they were. And uh, come on, all these other animals have such cool stuff. You know, honeybees can see into the ultraviolet. Snakes, pit vipers can sense into the infrared. You know, sharks can sense electricity. We have none of that, right? So nature built this awesome gear and gave it to other animals. If we don't have it ourselves, can't we at least kind of hack around it? Can't we kind of speed up evolution? Now, I threw out the idea slightly glibly of, of wings so you could fly. And you said, no, not yet. <laughs> well, Are I you know sincere? People, people have experimented with this. I don't think anybody's gotten uh, very far. I don't know of anybody who's actually uh, managed to build a set of wings. But I do know lots of people who say, look, why do I only have to have two arms? What if I wanted three, you know? What if I wanted removable eyes and different colors? You have know, you met like, anyone with three arms yet? No, not yet. But one of the reasons why not is because the medical industry, the uh, pharmaceutical industry, the bioengineering industry is not meant to, to augment otherwise healthy people, right? These industries are geared around the idea that a doctor should do no harm. So if you're not sick, a doctor's not going to do anything extra to you, right? And all of the money for development goes into making people with uh, some kind of disease or deficiency, you know, bringing them up to what we would consider normal. So a lot of biohackers and grinders are frustrated. They say like, hey, if a doctor looked at me, they would say I'm healthy. They would say there's no reason to take on the risk of an extra surgery. There's no reason to give me a prosthetic. Well, what if I just want one, right? It's an interesting line of argument. Well, talking about the the regulation around this, I read that because a lot of these biohacks, the ones that you explained are not FDA approved, um, that means that doctors aren't performing the procedure, so there's no one there to administer any kind of um, anesthetic. So if you want to be a real-life cyborg, you have to endure some pain, right? You have to cut yourself open. I think so. I mean, I don't know that I don't know that you have to do it yourself. A lot of people, when they want to get uh, an implant, they'll go to a professional piercer or a professional body modder, you know, kind of people who work in the piercing and tattooing universe. There are do-it-yourself RFID kits where you kind of inject yourself with a syringe. Are they injecting themselves with a painkiller? When you said inject, what do you mean? No, you mean? they're injecting themselves with the RFID chip itself. They have a little syringe that shoots the chip right into kind of the webbing between uh, the thumb and the forefinger. No, no, anas, uh, no anesthetic at all. They just grit their teeth and do it. No, is it true that the definition of a cyborg, according to cyborgs, is that you need to break the skin? 
and implant something? I don't. I don't think so. Actually, I think uh, grinders are people who they're kind of the uh, mechanical engineering arm of the biohacker universe. In other words, they're trying to build a device that will go in the body, rather than trying to optimize some aspect of their health or their uh, body through something like nutrition or pharmaceutical or something like that. They're they're using a device, right? Cyborgs, wow, I mean, the definition of a cyborg can be vast, right? It basically just means augmented by technology. But they're a kind of biohacker. Yeah, they could be in the okay. great Venn diagram of how all these guys fit together. It's really overlapping. But I've met people who made, I think, really convincing arguments that you're a cyborg if you're wearing eyeglasses, right? That makes me a cyborg. Right. You're, you're a cyborg. I'm a cyborg uh, because we're wearing this prosthetic that gives us a superpower, enhances our vision, right? It's not naturally part of our body. It's a technology somebody had to invent. You know, a thousand years ago, putting, uh, you know, some kind of uh, glass optic over the eye and wearing it around all the time would have seen like a medical marvel, and now we just ignore it. There was a, a guy I talked to named Rob Spence who goes by Iborg, and he, <laughs> because he has built a camera that goes in his eye socket. He lost an, a, an eye as a child in a shooting accident, so he built a camera that he can wear in his eye socket. And he said, wearing shoes makes you a cyborg because you're not born with them, and they protect you against your, the, the harsh environment. They protect your feet against the snow. I think... A person could make a plausible argument that anything that you do that changes your body state or your brain state is biohacking. Can I challenge you on that? Yeah. Because hacking, the original definition of hacking was um, understanding a system well enough that you could break into it, explore it, master it, maybe out of curiosity, maybe for nefarious reasons, and maybe repurpose it. Now, if I slip on a pair of glasses or a pair of shoes, I'm not saying that I understand how my visual system works or the, um, the nerves in the bottom of my feet, but I'm slipping on shoes and glasses anyway. I don't think I'm a biohacker. But you're optimizing, right? You're making things better. You're creating a clever fix to well, a problem. What's the hacking part? I think, well, one of the definitions of a hack is a trick or a fix or an exploit, right? So when you put on glasses, you're exploiting the principles of optics to make your vision better. You don't necessarily have to understand those principles to use it. You know, when you put shoes on your feet, you're exploiting the ability of rubber and suede to protect your feet from the cold. But I, I, I'll take your broader point, right? Which is that there's a lot of things that we do to engineer our bodies uh, and to kind of optimize our health or our abilities that are so common to us, they're invisible. Fillings in my teeth that prevent my cavities from spreading. Lots of people, lots of my friends have some kind of bolt or screw that's holding their ankle or their wrist together. Lots of women use implantable birth control to control their fertility that way. I know people with hearing aids. I know people with contact lenses. When the term hacking is floated about, I think the first thing that comes to the fore are computer mm -hmm. hackers and people that are breaking into computers and stealing your password. Do you see a, a connection between computer hackers and biohackers? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think the mm. original sense of the word hack is generally positive and playful and curious. It's about knowing a system well enough to know every corner of it and to make it do cool things that other people would be amazed to find out that it can do. Does it need to be purposeful? Meaning do you have to be thinking to yourself, 
I am hacking my body or this is a biohack or can you stumble into biohacking just by slipping out a pair of shoes? I think you can stumble into it. I didn't think I was a biohacker until somebody pointed out that I was wearing glasses. So slouching towards biohacking. <laughs> That's exactly it. Slouching towards biohacking. It's given you the title for your next book, perhaps. <laughs> I believe Joan Didion may have a bone to pick with me. <laughs> Kara Platoni, thank you so much for speaking with us about biohacking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Kara Platoni is a science reporter, a lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, Physicians, and Scientists Are Transforming Human Perception One Sense at a Time. You know, it's interesting that the definition of biohacking seems to be elastic enough to encompass both people willing to put chips into their arms and the two of us who wear glasses. Yeah. Well, I've never thought of myself as being a biohacker. Uh, when I take my glasses off, do I lose my privileges? Yes, you do. But do you have fillings in your teeth? I do. Lamentably, I do. Okay. So uh, according to one definition, you are still a biohacker. It might be advantageous. You know, there are people who can hear uh, radio programs in their teeth. No, it's true because uh, th those fillings act as uh, what are called rectifiers. So well, I would no... like to reach that demographic. you got to turn up the signal a bit. <laughs> Well, the human body is complex, but so is the global climate system. It, too, is interconnected, and if you drastically change one component, well, you might destabilize another. So do we know enough to hack it and fix what ails our overheated planet? The promise and the perils of geoengineering next. You're listening to Angles of a Hack on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. In our first episode about hacking, we talked about the 1950s phone system. Increasingly automated, it practically beckoned nerdy teenagers to figure it out and tap in, and they did. For their hacking exploits, Bell Telephone, later AT&T, lost revenue on long-distance calls, but in the grand scheme of things, the stakes were low. The stakes are also low with biohacking, unless the biohackers hack someone other than themselves. One thing I know, they better keep away from rewiring my brain booster implant if I ever get one. Today, the consequences of hacking have ratcheted up with the threat of cyber warfare. There's another complex and ubiquitous system that's also a tempting target for hacking, but to do so would have profound consequences for everyone. Now, some say that we may have no choice, that we're required to deliberately tinker with it 
in order to restore balance, a balance that we've inadvertently upset. Generally speaking, the Earth's climate system comprises five main components. The atmosphere, the lithosphere, that is the solid outer part of the Earth that includes the crust, the hydrosphere, that is all the water on the Earth's surface, and the cryosphere, that is the frozen water. And there is a fifth category, that's you and all other living things. Now, all of these systems are interconnected. If you significantly alter one, you could disrupt the equilibrium of another. We've already done that by pumping a large amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. This not only warms the air, but the surface water of our oceans. It has a number of disruptive consequences. But could we now deliberately futz with the climate system to restore its balance? Okay, as a climate hacker, the task before you is this. Remove the compounds produced by burning fossil fuels from the atmosphere, the principal one being carbon dioxide, and if you can't cool the Earth, at least keep its temperature from increasing any further. People may wince at the term climate hacker, but the phrase hacking the climate has been popping up to describe what is being proposed under the rubric of geoengineering and its suite of technical fixes. And yes, we are talking about fiddling with a system on a large scale to repurpose it to our ends, whether with a massive phalanx of machines that suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, or maybe swarms of tiny reflective devices that bounce the sun's rays back into space. If we cannot find a way to reduce the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, well, geoengineering may be our plan B, but it doesn't come without consequences. The question is, do we know what they are? Hi, I'm Oliver Morton. I'm a senior editor at The Economist in London, where I look after our briefings and essays, and I'm the author of a book called The Planet Remade. The subtitle, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. Oliver, you write that we have little biological machines already that take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They're called plants. Now, we need to take an enormous amount of CO2 out, granted, but what would be required if we just got plants to photosynthesize our way out of this mess? Let's, let's put my office ficus to work. Photosynthesis is great, Seth, but if you actually want to take a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere quite quickly, photosynthesis doesn't really cut it. So one way of doing this would be what's called BECS, which is biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, where you your ficus plant, except we're not going to burn your ficus plant, so friends of your ficus plant take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We burn them and get energy, and the carbon dioxide that we get from burning them, we pump into some sort of like underground reservoir. And so that's the idea of Bex. That sounds to me like burning it just produces more CO2. So what you're saying is you burn it inside a building. You burn, or it, in a spe- you burn it in a specialist power station which takes the gas from the chimneys and instead pumps the carbon dioxide from that gas down into the earth. That's the baseline idea at the moment for how one might take large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The problem is that in order to take really large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, so to sort of like drop the atmospheric level by about one part per million per year, which is half the rate that we're now increasing it by, you would have to have a plantation for ficus plants and eucalyptus and other things that was kind of, sort of like twice the size of India. And it's very, very hard to find good land in that sort of quantity on the face of the planet. In fact, we just don't have it. The land use implications of doing BECs at that sort of scale are 
pretty much insoluble. Gee, I wonder if uh, India is willing to give itself over to being... I suspect not. I suspect, (laughs) by and large, most people, if you ask, you know that farmland that supports you? We'd like to turn it into a bioenergy plantation. A lot of people are going to say no. Okay, so this, uh, if you will, organic solution. Uh, I use that only because of the popularity of organic foods, uh, but that's simply not on at the moment, or maybe never on. Is it possible that we could engineer some sort of uh, small photosynthetic plants? I mean, most of them are small, blue-green algae or whatever. Throw them into the ocean and have them suck up all the CO2. Well, there have been ideas about, I mean, you don't have to throw blue-green algae into the ocean because there's lots of them out there, and if you engineer them, a lot of people will have problems with the idea of engineered plants being just uh, engineered algae being just released out there has been this idea that you could feed the algae that are already in the ocean more iron and that like Popeye the sailor man they would become bigger and stronger and suck down more carbon dioxide Um, and this idea has been looked at to the extent that people have actually tried dropping iron in the oceans the issue with that is twofold one is that though it works it doesn't work quite as well in fact anything like as well as theory suggested it might do and so the amount of carbon you could actually get and sink all the way to the bottom of the ocean would be relatively small Uh, The other point is that most of the things we do to try and look after the environment, we try and minimize the effect on ecosystems. If you're doing this, then you're starting off by maximally affecting the way that ecosystem works by changing the very basis of the food web, by changing the amount of phytoplankton you have out there. All right. And therefore, the consequences of doing that are somewhat unpredictable. You might have uh, created a problem much worse than uh, what you started with or not. I'm not sure about much worse because... Global warming is a big problem, but you might have created another problem without doing much by way of offering a solution. Let's consider another idea. Instead of scrubbing the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, uh, why don't we um, you know, just sort of cool the planet down by reflecting some of the sunlight that uh, is impinging on it? One way to do that would be to put some sort of screening chemicals, maybe sulfuric acid, even particulate matter, uh, into the atmosphere. Would that work? Yeah, I think that it's pretty likely that that would work if by work you mean would that be able to drop the temperature. Yes, we, know, we see this when sulfur dioxide is emitted by volcanoes in large amounts. We see that the atmosphere then cools and this makes perfect sense. You put a lot of little white particles all, o- all through the stratosphere and it, they will bounce off sunlight. Less sunlight gets through and the earth will become less warm than it otherwise was. So the idea that that would work in principle is, I think, reasonably well settled. Whether there's a limit to how much cooling you could get, that's something one could still discuss. But the idea that you could cool by a few degrees that way is, I think, reasonably uncontroversial. The question then is, what else are you doing when you're cooling? Because the stratosphere also has an ozone layer in it. You'd probably like to take care of that. Also, if you change the amount of sunlight coming into the Earth's system, you change the patterns of rainfall and evaporation, and that has issues of its own. Well, what about local solutions? Think globally, uh, act locally. I, I think I once worked out that if we replaced macadam with something that was, you know, brighter, had twice the albedo, reflected twice as much sunlight back into space as that dark pavement on the roads here, that we could, you know, reflect an additional energy that was equivalent to the amount that's melting the ice in Greenland. And, uh, you know, you only have to do it once. I mean, one thing is you might be reflecting an equivalent amount of energy, though that seems a little high to me, but you wouldn't be reflecting it away from Greenland, so Greenland would keep melting. 
But in general, I think what you say is quite right. I think that by making our cities more reflective, our cities brighter, we can certainly do something about what's known as the urban heat island effect, which tends to make cities warmer than the surrounding countryside. And that's a big issue since increasingly most of us live in cities. And so, yes, making cities, making roofs and road surfaces and sidewalks more reflective, that certainly helps. You can also think about possibly putting um, some sort of reflective surface over more of our reservoirs. Reservoirs at the moment soak up a lot of heat and you could reflect away a lot of heat, so that might be a possibility. There's an idea that a researcher I know in Bristol in the UK, Andy Ridgewell, has suggested, which is that you might make crops the leaves of crops very slightly more reflective. And interestingly, in sort of like some analysis, that would not interfere with the photosynthesis, or only very marginally, but would cool the crop down. And since one of the things that you really worry about with global warming and agriculture is that the very, very hottest days have a completely non-linear effect on the crop yield. So these days that are really hot, they really, really hurt. So if you had a crop that never got quite as hot because it was a bit more reflective, that might actually do you quite a lot of good on a local level, even a regional level, even if it didn't affect global temperature much. I think I'll put mirrors on the roof of my house. But uh, the thing you have to remember is that reflecting away sunlight is not a very good solution if you are not also reducing carbon dioxide emissions. If you just go to a planet where you're making the greenhouse effect stronger and the albedo stronger, uh, and you go on doing that for you know decades and centuries, you're going to run into some really severe problems, and you're also going to turn the oceans acid. Oliver, geoengineering is sometimes dubbed either glibly or perhaps darkly as hacking the climate system. The term hacking usually connotes evil intent, but the original definition of hacking meant to you know kind of break into a system, understand it, repurpose it. If we go ahead with geoengineering, would you consider that? hacking the climate system? Because that's the terminology that's frequently used. Yeah, I think there's a certain truth to it, but I'm a little leery about it because although I don't think all hacking is bad hacking, I think all hacking is necessarily only marginally within any sort of like reputable sphere of governance. And I think that's part of the fun of being a hacker, right? You're not doing it within a well-governed zone of action. You're doing it slightly as a as a maverick, as a freelance. And that's not a way I'd like to see geoengineering done, because I, the ways we've just talked about it, Seth, there were obviously serious issues with geoengineering, and you want to have some sort of governance process that looks after this. It won't be a perfect one, but you certainly want to be thinking about that. And the hacker mentality of just sort of like doing it just on the basis that you're smart and you can see how to do it. That's not going to cut it for geoengineering. You don't have to it's more about more than just smart people finding smart answers. It's about a wide representative group of people discussing whether these answers are also just and whether they're safe and whether they're responsive to the actual will of the people who are scattered around the planet and specifically whether they're meeting the needs of the people who are most affected by climate change, which tends to be people in the poorer parts of the world. So hacking is a good thing. Yes, I can quite see that. But hacking as a sort of like individualistic kind of libertarian, let's ditch the system. We need a system if we're even going to think about geoengineering. I don't think geoengineering necessarily has to be tried. I think that we need to explore the possibility. And I think we need to do that with something a little different from the hacker mentality. 
you know, some of this discussion has been slightly lugubrious, so I, I just ask you this sort of for fun, but you've, you've looked at a lot of these ideas for geoengineering. Uh, any that uh, you came across that was, you know, truly wild, I mean, out there, as it were? I can't remember where it came from, but someone had an idea of putting so many wind turbines in the air current that goes around Antarctica that you would divert that air current so that it went over the Antarctic continent, and that would allow you to have more precipitation over Antarctica, and that would actually allow you to keep the ice levels in Antarctica the same, and simultaneously developing terawatts of energy from all these wind turbines. I kind of liked that. Um, there's a wonderful idea some Soviet scientists talked about in the 1950s of giving the Earth rings like Saturn, which would shade one hemisphere at, in summer and the other hemisphere at the other times. And I can't remember quite why they wanted to do this, other than that it would have looked way cool. On the subject of what could go wrong, because, of course, that concerns just about anybody who thinks about this, give me a dire scenario. I mean, we try to fix this problem and uh, something goes wrong. What would be the worst case scenario? Any idea? Worst case scenario is the same as the worst case scenario in almost anything else. What goes wrong is that two major nations have severe disagreements about the wisdom of a particular sort of geoengineering. One of them is unwilling to give it up. The other one is unwilling for it to go ahead. This leads to conflict, which leads eventually to nuclear war. I mean, basically, the answer to almost any what is the worst thing that could happen question is nuclear war. So to me, the political downside of something like that is stronger than any plausible geophysical feedback. I mean, the other thing that could, I suppose, happen would be that geoengineering would work too well and people would just completely give up on emissions reduction. And so we'd just get an ever more geoengineered world with ever higher levels of carbon dioxide and all the coral reefs would vanish and the ecosystem in the oceans would change and eventually we'd start running into really severe droughts because the hydrological system would change and by that stage we wouldn't be able to take the carbon dioxide out and we wouldn't be able to reduce the amount of geoengineering and we'd find ourselves stuck. I mean, both of those are plausible things. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that there are real worries about geoengineering, I'd be much more gung-ho about it. My position is merely that we should look at it and, going back to the question of governance, we should try and set it up in a way that doesn't lead to nuclear war or the end of the world because, you know, we're generally against those things. Oliver Borton, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks very much, Seth. It's always a pleasure. Oliver Morton is the former chief news and features editor of the journal Nature, the current briefings editor for The Economist, and the author of The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. In the first episode of Two on hacking, we considered the exploits of the original practitioners. These were the teenagers and renegades who hacked into the phone system because they were intensely curious about how that system worked. Today, hacking has evolved to mean breaking into a computer system, often with malevolent motives, but also biohackers whose intent is the betterment of the human species. When those teenagers hacked the phone system, they knew that system well. It's unlikely that we understand the complexities of the climate system as well, but may find that we have to hack it anyway to get us out of the mess we've created. It's a hack that we may be reluctant to initiate, but that may be necessary to mitigate serious problems. One of the differences is that when the teenagers hacked the phone system, they didn't change the system itself. That's right. They didn't really threaten the system. 
they were exploiting a, a small vulnerability that other people wouldn't be able to exploit unless they had maybe perfect pitch, something like that. Free phone calls is, is not terribly malicious. Whereas if you're hacking the internet and also the climate system, you're changing the systems, especially the latter. And there's always the possibility of unintended consequences, particularly, of course, with climate, because you fix this problem over here and you may have created much worse problems that might not be so easy to fix. Well, thanks to the team that always keeps plants in their offices to soak up that CO2. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, and intern Daniel Marino. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the interplay of geology in our atmosphere. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Angles of a Hack. It's the second of two episodes on the theme. You can find the first episode, Plan of a Hack, along with other Big Picture Science episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because someone hacked your smartphone, turning it into a toaster oven, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.